The church is the glorious body that carries a twofold redemptive work of restoring two things, both the glory of God in man's worship, and then secondly, restoring our subsequent joy and our obedience to him through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pilgrim Benham. I'm the lead pastor of Shoreline Church. And today we are doing a second study in a series called Healthy Church. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 as we look at eight aspects of a healthy church. Hope you enjoy it. You know, we are starting our second week today in this series, Healthy Church. And it's a little bit of a departure from John. We'll be back in the Gospel of John in just uh, two weeks. But as we continue this series, I think that I want to open today with with kind of an idea that, that it's really easy, and you can nod your head in agreement, it's really easy to skip church or to kind of drop out of fellowship in a congregation or in a body of people. It's really easy to lose touch with people. Am I right? Is it easy? It's, it's, it's hard to do what you guys did this morning. You guys, you guys I want to applaud you. You got up, and whether you had coffee or not, if you didn't have coffee, I really applaud you. You made it out on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. to worship Jesus and, and together with God's people. And, and I think that there's a lot of easy ways for us to make up excuses why I just couldn't make church, why I just can't get connected to people. And, and what I want to do for a minute as we open is, is uh, this is not mine, I stole this, but I thought this was great. If we were to apply the same excuses that we use for not attending church or not being a part of a fellowship, if we use that same list of excuses for something like food, what would this look like if we use the same excuses, I don't go to church anymore because, but we use that for I don't eat anymore because. Let's walk through these for a minute. Uh, maybe top 10. Number one, I was forced to eat as a child. That's why I don't go to uh, eat anymore. Number two, people who eat all the time, they're just hypocrites. They aren't really hungry. (laughs) They aren't really hungry. How about this? Number three, there are so many different kinds of food. I can't decide what to eat. So many varieties. Who knows what to eat? Number four, I used to eat But I got bored, so I stopped eating. I stopped eating. Number five, I only eat on special occasions, like like Christmas and and Easter. (laughs) That's the only time I eat. Number six, uh, you know, I would, but none of my friends will eat with me. It's a lonely thing eating this meal. Number seven, I'll start eating, yeah, when I get older. When I get older, it'll happen. Number eight, I I don't really have time to eat. I'm a busy guy, and it's Sunday. I I got other stuff to do. Number nine, I don't believe that eating does anybody any good. You know, it's just a crutch. It's just your crutch. Or finally, number 10, restaurants and grocery stores are only after your money anyway. Now, as silly as those sound, there are, there are actually a lot of unhealthy excuses for why people avoid church. And there's actually a lot of unhealthy examples of church itself. And we looked at some of those last week, some of the misses, where we want to hit the target, but we miss the target, and so we, we miss the mark. Uh, and so we learned the mark of why we exist as a church last week. Uh, It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and it's to make disciples. Amen? That is why we exist as a church, to glorify God, to glorify Jesus, to make disciples. That's why we exist. And so this morning, we're going to continue this series, Healthy Church, and I want to look at the example, 
the New Testament early church example that met in Jerusalem, and this is really kind of a prototype, an example for us, a template, if you would, for what church should be. And so what I want to do real quick is I just read through, we read through verses 36 through 47. What I want to do is scan them just momentarily. So get your eyes on the scripture, on the text. We're going to scan real quick. Some of you don't have the ESV, so I apologize, but try to follow with me. When I read through these, I found eight uh, of the word and, A-N-D. I found and listed eight times. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through eight aspects of the healthy church. And we'll spend about 25 minutes on each one. So we'll be out by about 3 o'clock today. No, I'm just kidding. We'll move quickly. But let me just show you them in case you have a different translation. Uh, Start in verse 38. In verse 38, it says, And Peter said to them, showing us that in a healthy church there is gospel proclamation. Okay? It's in verse 40. It says, And with many other words he bore witness and exhorted them to save themselves. Okay? So that shows us there's gospel separation. It's in verse 42, and they devoted themselves. It's in verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. You find it in verse 44, all who believed were together and they had all things in common. It's there in verse 45, and they sold their possessions and distributed to to all. It's in verse 46, and day by day attending the temple, breaking bread, praising God, etc. And then it's in verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. So there's eight ands that jump off the page. And so we're going to walk through each one of these. We'll put them all on the screen together. If you want to take a picture of this, this is our template today, what we're going to walk through. Uh, We're going to see gospel in a healthy church, gospel proclamation. We're going to see gospel separation. Uh, Then we're going to see gospel devotion. Uh, Along with that, gospel awe, gospel community, We're going to see gospel generosity, which is an overflow of that community. And then we'll see gospel worship, which leads to gospel impact. Okay, now those are by no means exhaustive. There are other aspects of healthy churches. But from this text, that's what we find. All right, so nobody come up, nobody throw a stone, nobody afterwards say, hey, you missed one. All right, I I get it. There's more than this. This is not the list of all lists. But from this text, I find these. So uh, let's look at the first one, gospel proclamation. Would you look at verse 36? Uh, This is the end of a sermon that Peter was preaching uh, on the day of Pentecost. Now, on that day, the followers of Christ numbered around 120 adults. By the way, that's a little bit smaller than Shoreline. Uh, It's a smaller group than what we have on a normal Sunday morning. So this is a smaller church. The Church of Jesus began with a smaller gathering, look around, than what we have today. It was a smaller group than that. And so they began uh, this fellowship Uh, on this day of Pentecost, just coming together in prayer. And the Holy Spirit in that moment falls in such a way that the scripture says tongues of fire seem to separate and fall on the believers. Uh, And they then begin to proclaim the wonders of God in various languages. They're speaking in tongues. And the sound of a rushing wind kind of fills the place where they were to the extent that people around them, thousands, begin to hear this and they kind of congregate to find out what's going on. And as they gather and they're, they're wondering, why do I hear you praising God in my language? It's a very different dialect. It's a very specific dialect. How is this possible? They begin to judge the church and say, well, it's early. They're probably drunk. They're inebriated. That's why they're babbling in all these different tongues. And so Peter says, no, no, no. no they're, they're not drunk. Let me clarify. And then in no uncertain terms begins to proclaim Christ to the extent that when you get to verse 36, he then points the finger. 
I mean, talk about not wanting to offend. Peter doesn't care. He's not worried about like, let me just say God has a wonderful plan for your life and he loves you. And if you want to come to him today, if, if you feel like it, if you're feeling he's going to make you better. No, what does he do? Verse 36, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know. He's like, hey, let all of Lakewood Ranch know. I just want everyone here who's breathing and listening to know this for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And he points the finger back and says, you did it. You, sir, you, ma'am, you crucified Jesus. I mean, that to me, in no uncertain terms, is absolute gospel proclamation. There is, he's not holding anything back. He's going for it. And so look what happens, verse 37. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were brought this great conviction. There was a sense of shame and guilt that washed over them and a sense of, of a realization that they uh, were at odds with and at enmity with God. And so they said, well, what do we do? And so Peter says, well, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you do this, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So if you notice what's happening here with this gospel proclamation, uh, the gospel is being proclaimed in, in the sense that Jesus Christ crucified is Lord. That is the gospel. That is the gospel message. Jesus Christ is Lord. So he's proclaiming that. And as Christ is preached, the people are then cut to the heart. And what has happened is the Father has done this work of drawing and regenerating and producing faith and conviction. And their response is, well, wh what do we do? What should I do? And that statement, that question, is a, is a statement of conviction and faith. And so Peter says, repent and be baptized. He might as well have said, repent and believe. Same principle. And he explains that, listen, the promise of salvation is for everyone whom the Lord our God has called. Now, we're not going to stress out in this sermon uh, over what theologians call the ordo salutis. We're not going to talk about the order of salvation necessarily. Uh, but suffice to say, in this exact moment, God had been drawing sinners. He had already been drawing them. Uh, the, the gospel was being proclaimed. The gospel was being heard. As this is, is happening, Christ was named. It wasn't just like this kind of idea, this concept of God. Christ was named. Uh, uh, there was a change happening in the heart of the otherwise unrepentant, uh, unbelieving men and women, which led to repentance and faith. And then there was forgiveness of sin. There was baptism. And there was a receiving of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through regeneration. Now, lots of people will argue which came first, which, which is happening in the order. Um, but we're not going to get into that today. I'll just draw your attention that at least in this section of Scripture, all of them are at work seemingly simultaneously. It's all a work of God. It's all a work of salvation. But listen, none of that would have been possible. Listen, if Christ had not been preached, if Christ had not been proclaimed. A healthy church, to kick this off today, is a church where Christ is on glorious display and he is unashamedly preached. Now, if, you, if something I say today resonates with you, I'd love to hear a hearty amen just to know that you're with me, all right? So listen to what Spurgeon said. You can amen him all day. He said, the motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? I love this. 
He's like, hey, if you're a pastor and you don't preach Christ, he says, then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. I love that. You know, believers who corporately gather to listen to the reading of Scripture, to the preaching of Scripture, gospel proclamation, listen, is central. It's not like an extra. We don't just tack it on at the end. Oh, I should like, preach the gospel real quick. That's, that's what we do. That's who we are. We're a community of Christ, for Christ, in Christ. We have t-shirts that say it's all about Jesus. That's not just a lame phrase that sounded cool and is easy to brand. That's what we're about. That's what our family's about. That's what your family should be about. That's what this church is about. It's about Jesus. So that brings us to our second idea, and that's gospel separation, the second and. Look at verse 40. Verse 40 says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Wow. Note with me how Peter exhorts these men who had been previously worldly to, quote, save yourself or save themselves from the wicked generation they were living among. Now, don't misinterpret this. He's not saying, Peter's not saying, you save yourself. That's not, that's religion where you save yourself. That's not what he's saying here. Uh, He's not implying that. He's encouraging them to be separate from the world in the same way that on the first day of creation, God separates light from darkness. He's saying, this already exists. I'm now gonna just separate it. Uh, One of the most important marks about the church is that we are set apart from the world. It's not that we need to be, though we do, but we already are. Uh, Intrinsically, a part of our identity is that we already are separate. And so one practical thing that we can do is to remind ourselves of our identity and then to practice our identity of being separated from the world. And often when we observe the church in the world, we find no difference. Uh, But there's a huge difference. Just just look at this list from Ephesians chapter 1. These are some things that that Paul says we are as the church. And now I dare you to try to jot these down before I get through them. Just take a picture, but try to jot through them. He says that we're blessed in heaven. That we're chosen before the world's creation, holy and blameless in his sight, predestined to be adopted as his sons. We've been given grace freely. We've been redeemed through his blood, forgiven of our sin, lavished with the goodness and the riches of his grace, shown the mystery of his will. We exist for the praise of his glory. We've been included in Christ. We hear the word of truth. We're marked with a seal. We have the inheritance of Christ. You and I are God's possession. We're called to live lives of hope, empowered by God as we submit to Jesus, who is the head, and we are a part of his body. That's, that's not just there in chapter 1, but throughout the, the book of Ephesians. That is who we are, and that the world does not have. The world cannot say that list, that that's who they are. That's who we are as the church. We're utterly called out of the world, separated. And I, I would just pray that more churches would learn this important lesson of not actually seeking to be more worldly. Like how do we reach the culture? Let's be more worldly. Let's be less separate. Let's be more earthly. No, that's not the concept. Uh, J. Wilbur Chapman on the screen said, it's not the ship in the water, but the water in the ship that sinks it. <laughs> so it is not the Christian in the world, but the world in the Christian that constitutes the danger. Isn't that good? Man, that is so good. He goes on, he says, anything that dims my vision of Christ, is there anything in your life that is dimming the vision of Christ or takes away my taste for Bible study, Facebook, or cramps my prayer life, 
Instagram, or makes Christian work difficult is wrong for me and I must as a Christian turn away from it. Man, that we would live such separated lives that the world looks and says, there is a distinction here. There is such a distinction. I see the love you have for Christ and one another and we see that you're his disciples. Well, gospel separation. Thirdly, in this text, we see number three, gospel devotion. Look at verse 42 with me. This is kind of the the popular verse for the early church. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to, and then it tells us four things. They devoted themselves. Now, that word devoted, you want to circle that, highlight that. Some of you guys have a different translation that may say continued steadfastly. The word in the Greek is a very interesting word. Uh, on the screen, the word is proskatereo. Can you say that with me so we can learn some Greek today? Proskatereo. Yeah, very good. No, we got close. Um, so proskatereo, it's two Greek words. The word pros means towards, motion towards, or moving a direction towards. Uh, and then katereo means strong, steadfast, firm, or persevering. So literally, what this means is to be steadfast in a direction, to be steadfast towards something, to lean forward towards something, to be single-minded. You could even say to persist obstinately even in a task. You could say it even means to have a one-track mind. Uh, my dog is like this. Some of you guys know about my, my uh, he's a Protestant uh, white lab named Luther. Some of you know about him. He's a little, he's a little young puppy, so He's, he can be aggravating, and he likes to nip, and um, we haven't taught him how to post things on doors yet, but we're working on it, and um, he is, don't get that reference, I guess, um, he, he's just very, uh, very interesting, and so what I mean by that is maybe he's a normal dog, maybe not, but when I, when I go up to him and I talk to him, I do, um, I'll say certain words, and those like trigger him, so he actually will tilt his head sideways if I say certain words, so... So if I'm talking to Jen and I'm like, hey, you know, it'd really be good for us to kind of walk back the year a little bit. If I, he heard the word walk, right? If I said, you know, we, we, really, should, we really should walk through this week and, and he'll kind of look at me and tilt his head, you know, like insightfully, like you said the word walk. Or if I say, oh, you know, man, um, it'd really be nice to, to go for a little car ride, right? Suddenly he starts panting, his tail starts wagging. He starts getting really excited. If I say anything about a dog park, which would only be in reference to him, uh, then he gets super triggered. And so we have to be careful of things. Sometimes I'm kind of cruel to him. I'm like, yeah, I see the guys are laying the sidewalk outside. And, you know, he starts going nuts. And so I'm a little bit of a mean owner. But he's in that way kind of devoted. To, he's hanging on our every word. He's obsessed with everything that we have to say. That's a stupid example, but you follow what I'm saying? Everything he's doing is devoted to the idea that food could be involved or a walk could be somewhere in my near future. So I'm going to hang on every word and listen and be ready. And that's a silly example. But the, the early church had gospel devotion to four things. Notice them with me. I think we have them on the screen. They were devoted to, number one, the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Imagine going from this crowd to 3,000 in one Sunday. Can you imagine what that would look like? We've got all these unbelievers going, what do we do with food sacrifice to idols? And what do we do with dress? And what do we do with kind of the celebrations of the Sabbath? How does this work? How, how, when do we worship? So there had to be a lot of teaching. They did not have much of the New Testament at this point. And so their teaching centered around Jesus and the Old Testament. And so they needed a lot of teaching. They were devoted to it. Secondly, they were devoted, look at it, to the fellowship. 
The Greek word is koinonia, and it means to have all things together in common. Now, let me just be careful. Koinonia does not mean communism, uh, where you take uh, everything that we all have, we take it all, and we put it in one big pile, and then, of course, you know, the leadership gets a cut, and then we're going to divide it out to everyone else uh, equally. No, that's not the idea. The idea is that there's communion, there's a sharing together, uh, that we have a deep connection with each other. The idea is we partake in the Lord's Supper together. We're one body. We're partners in the gospel. And we live in such a deep relational community with each other uh, to the extent that if someone among us doesn't have something that's a big need, then we take the, the initiative to help them. And so that means there's not anyone among us that's actually fully in need because we as the church meet that need. This community, in other words, has all the resources that all of us need to grow in Christ and to uh, serve our community. That's what koinonia means. But then they were not only devoted to that, but then thirdly, the breaking of bread. Uh, that could mean a few different things, maybe the agape love feast, uh, or it could just mean communion. But I love that the Lord's Supper brings us together, brings the church together, really like nothing else does. Next week, we're going to take communion together. And when I, when I lead communion uh, as the lead pastor and look out at our congregation, what I see is not uh, someone who's officiating and who's higher than the people. No, we all are kind of on that same level together. We're all partaking of the same bread and the same cup. It's a reminder that none of us are greater than anyone else. None of us are lesser. We're all at that same place in need. At the cross, our pride, it's leveled. Our humiliation is fully understood. And, and Jesus said, and as often as you do this, you remember me. No matter how often we're partaking in this communion together, got your attention, uh, the important element is to keep Christ at the center of our gatherings. Amen? <laughs> You're like, amen, don't do that again. <laughs> so number four, they were devoted to prayer. They're devoted to prayer. It's interesting that six out of the ten times that Pro Scotoreo is used in the New Testament is about prayer. Uh, are we devoted to prayer? Something where we go into the new year, we're like, yeah, fitness this year, I'm going to nail it. Yeah, I'm going to get my weight down. Yeah, I'm going to start to, is prayer on the list of things that, you know, these are goals I have for the year. This is my resolution. The church is devoted with singleness of mind to praying for one another and actually together. And they say the church that prays together stays together. And so I want to encourage us to be a church of prayer. We have prayer before every gathering. We have prayer in our gatherings. We have prayer community groups. We have nights of prayer. But I want to challenge you as the church body to adopt a normative practice daily, even moment by moment of prayer. We have a Facebook prayer wall where special needs are given uh, and prayed for, and we'd love for more people to post their prayer requests or be a part of that. But prayer is the key of relying on the Lord for all that we need. It's saying, I can't do it all myself. I need the Lord. So those are what the, the early church uh, was devoted to, gospel devotion, and that led to number four. Look at verse 43, gospel awe. And I don't mean awe like you say when you see a little puppy. But look at verse 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Okay, this is another Greek word. This is the Greek word phobos, or phobos, where we get the word phobia from. Uh, now, don't think of it as a fear in the sense that, like, I, I, I want to watch Bird Box, but I don't like scary movies. So I don't know if I, that's not the idea. The idea is not phobia. It can be translated that. Uh, but it can also be translated reverence, 
uh, or fear. It's the same word Peter used in 1 Peter 1.17. He says this, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves, here it is, with fear throughout the time of your exile. The idea is that there's a reverence, a respect for God to say God's at work. God's doing something in our lives. And we're not coming here just to find miracles, but when we show up, we have an expectation that God is here, that God is at work. Do you come to the gathering saying, I expect and see the hand of God to be at work? And I think that a church where God is present, God is active, God is moving, that's an exciting church to be a part of. When we see him answering prayer and we see him advancing the gospel and unbelievers coming to faith, Luke tells us many wonders and signs were being done. Obviously, God was doing it, but it says, he says, through the apostles. Isn't that cool? God could do the work, but he does it through the apostles. He does it through uh, the people of God. God wants to do a work in Lakewood Ranch. We just celebrated 25 years as a community, as, as, a, as a, a greater community of Lakewood Ranch. God wants to do a new work in this community. Uh, we are a part of that new work that God wants to do. He's raising up this church to continue to advance the gospel unapologetically in this needy community. And so I'm excited to see what he's going to do. But he's going to do that work through, it's not just going to happen, he's going to do it through us, through you, through me. Would you, I, I know we hate doing this, but I like doing it because I don't have anyone to do it with. Can you turn to your neighbor and just say, God wants to do a new work. Can you just lean over to your neighbor and tell him that? Also tell them you need more coffee. That's fine. Now reply back, you need a breath mint. No, I'm just kidding. That's good. God wants to do something. Awe came upon every soul. And I would love, that's even people outside of the fellowship. And I would love for people outside of Shoreline to say, did you hear what God is doing? There's something happening at that YMCA. Something's going on. God's doing a work. And I'm in awe of what's going on. Well, the fifth aspect of a healthy church is gospel community. We just talked about that, but look at verse 44. It says, all who believed were together and they had all things in common. Okay, that is the spirit of koinonia. There's a, a spirit of togetherness. There's a sense of meeting together and caring for one another. So that American ideal of the rugged individual, that was completely foreign. D.L. Moody said this. I love this. Church attendance is as vital to a disciple as a transfusion of rich, healthy blood to a sick man. We need this gathering. We need community. In fact, people need community. That's why instead of brewing a bag of Starbucks coffee at home, what do you do? You drive to their location, you park your car, you go in, you pay $4.90 for a grande, which is not even a large, even though that's large in Spanish, that's a medium because there's messing with us. And so you get this, this cup of coffee you way overpaid for, and it's really not that great. And, and you did that. You met up there because there's other people around you. Why do we pay big bucks to work out at the Y or at LA Fitness or at CrossFit? Why? It's because there's people around us. We're, you're able to roll tires and do ropes in your garage. Why are you doing it at that place? Because you want to be around people, because people uh, are in community. Uh, why do we still go to Kiwanis clubs? Because and when you drive by them, they're outdated and scary, but people still are involved with them. Why? Because there's people there. That's why we live in tribes around the world, in villages, in neighborhoods. We have a specific amount of friends. We, have, we live in complexes and high-rises because we long for and live among community. You were created for community. You were created to be isolated on your own. And the reality is people are lonelier than ever. Uh, they have been doing some health studies, and they have found 
that in uh, 1950, only about 10% of houses had one, only one person living in them. Only 10% in 1950. But uh, they re-studied this in 94, and that had moved up to 24%. 24% of households, uh, like, like 20 years ago, almost 30 years ago, uh, were, were basically, uh, had moved up. So it's even more today. They found that loneliness is more dangerous for your health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I don't know how that's possible, but I know that in England, the British prime minister this last year appointed a minister of loneliness <laughs> to deal with the issue. Uh, we are lonely as a community, but listen, only in a community of repentant, regenerated Christ followers can true community build us up and actually not leave us empty and longing for something more tangible and real. That's why I discourage people from church shopping because you only get to know people when they're on their best behavior. Like you didn't get to know someone just now when they were being greeting, greeting you. It's not like, like, hey, I've got a new best friend. Hey, hey, like, like uh, my BFF, I just, I just met him. Your wife's like, what's his name? Like I, I haven't met him, I don't know his name yet, but he's really nice. Right? We, we, we don't get community from the greeting time. You don't get community from one or two Sundays, from even four or five. It's building our lives together. The very nature of the gathering and scattering of believers is that we're a one another people. Uh, can I give you some verses to jot down for later? Because if we did them today, we'd be here much longer. The New Testament uses this phrase, one another. And let me just throw them at you real quick. Uh, Romans 16, 16, not on the screen, says, greet one another. Did you do that this morning? Did, did you greet one another? We're to, we're, to, we're to greet someone who comes into our church. Are you kidding me? You showed up today? We want to greet you in the name of Jesus. Thanks for being here with us. So greet one another. Uh, Romans 15, 7, accept one another. That's a little harder. I'll, I'll greet. I don't know if I want to accept. Uh, Romans 14, 13 says, stop passing judgment on one another. That's difficult. And we need to stop being critical. Stop passing judgment. Uh, but do what Ephesians 4, 2 says, bear with one another. Uh, we're to bear with one another. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, encourage one another. Romans 12, 10, be devoted, there's that word again, to one another. Romans 13, 8, love one another. Galatians 5, 13, serve one another. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Colossians 3.16, teach and admonish one another. And Colossians 3.13, forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. That's, that's what we're to be as this one another people. But it goes deeper than that. Because an overflow practically of our gospel community is gospel generosity. Look at verse 45, guys. Verse 45 says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is practical community, practical koinonia. Uh, so here's what happens. When we care about what God is doing, then we give a generous first fruit of our income to the local church that we're committed to and that we're in fellowship with. And this is really where the religious rubber kind of meets the road. You can't say, I love God's people, but I, I, I don't want to meet with them. You can't say, I love God's people, but I don't ever want to be around them. Right? I, someone has said, I love Jesus, but I hate his children. No, 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 that's not how it works. You can't say that. Uh, you can't say, I want to be a part of the work God is doing and be a contributor without giving of my time, talents, and treasure. It, it's, it's inconsistent. And that's why I love that we have um, channels within our church to do this. We have an SOS team. 
If you don't know about the SOS team, you're missing out, man. This is one of the most exciting ministries that we have in our church, and it's one of the newest ones where we find out who has a need in our church, and then we just, like, meet it. It's amazing. We had a need this week to help someone move, and I was trying to personally coordinate it. Well, then I find out through the grapevine, the SOS team already put the whole thing together. And they're like, oh, yeah, did you want to be involved, Pastor? I was like, heck, yes, this is awesome. You guys are amazing. You've already done it. What a great picture. Uh, we, as a church, get out in the community and love and serve and help those around us in need. And we're going to do more of that this year. I'm excited uh, to do more of that. Listen, God is a generous God, and he's given us everything. And we get to serve him by being generous to one another. You see, after Acts chapter 2, a few months later, there was a husband and wife of this same early church, and they decided to hold back their generosity in sin, and they lied to the church to put up this false generosity. They lied about it, and they lied to the Holy Spirit, and they were judged for it. And eventually, I think that kind of brought corruption in the church. Eventually, the same church in Jerusalem became very persecuted and poor, and other churches had to raise offerings to help them get back in a place of health. Uh, but at this point, uh, beginning early on, there was this spirit of generosity towards all. I love it. I love it. Now, two more. In a healthy church, one of the most important aspects uh, on the screen is gospel worship. Okay, look at verse 46. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, some of you caught this earlier. Notice they met often and in a variety of places. It was not just at the temple, at Solomon's Colonnade, uh, nor was it just at home. So this was not a house church movement that, that they occasionally met once a month. No, this was, this was both and. They met in the public square uh, on a weekly basis, and then they met in each other's homes much more often. And so I take that as kind of a learn, like, oh, let's do that. We'll meet on Sundays the Lord's Day, uh, right, the day Jesus was resurrected, and then, you know, throughout the week, we'll meet in each other's homes. We'll make sure and, and, and be invited before we do that, but this is a great opportunity for us to have community groups. So, man, I would love for every shoreliner to commit to being a part of uh, hosting or attending a community group. They found that 21% of Americans attend church every week, only 21%. And they found within the church, this is crazy to me, but this is a, a valid stat. In the church, people attend church once a month. That's the average going attendance rate. That's the average. Uh, the church is not merely a place where we come together and get taught principles and then we help the less fortunate. We tell our kids not we're going to church, but we're going to meet with the church. The, the church is a place where the glory of God is manifested. And so you get this idea from verses 46 and 47 that there's, there's this desire to just come together and glorify God. And yet when that happens, notice there's this generosity and this gladness of heart that overflows when you're bringing him glory with others. You could say that the glory of God and our joy are kind of inextricably linked. They're linked together. And so when we go back to Genesis, you don't need to, but we go back to the very beginning of the fall. Genesis um, tells us that Satan's first ploy was to drive a wedge be between mankind's understanding of God's character, God's nature uh, of being good, uh, to drive a wedge between that and for Eve to believe that her ultimate joy uh, was, 
being denied by God. And so thus the temptation was to exchange the truth of God for what I call the lie, right? The lie, not a lie, but the lie. The lie is that, listen, God's goodness, this is the lie, his goodness and glory are to be doubted. And we can attain that glory elsewhere apart from God in creation in what pleases the eye or what's pleasing to consume or what brings us glory. Uh, and so the only way to truly cast doubt on God's goodness and glory is to cast doubt on his word. And that's what Satan does. Is, did God really say? And so Jesus comes embodying the word made flesh uh, in Christ, the fullness of Christ. Our joy is complete and God's glory reaches its full culmination. And so the church is the glorious body that carries a twofold redemptive work of restoring two things, both the glory of God in man's worship and then secondly, restoring our subsequent joy in our obedience to him through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, our, his glory and our joy are inextricably linked. And so the, the means of advancing God's kingdom is through worship. Right? And I don't mean like, get the guitar, let's go out front and start singing. That's not the idea. Uh, although Israel, they, when they went out in a procession, they did have the worship leaders out front. But nonetheless, the primary means of advancing God's kingdom is through worship. And that means dispelling lies and heralding truth. Right? That's ultimately what worship is. It's, it's giving God glory and then living lives of sacrifice. And so spiritual warfare is less about, you know, fighting demons behind every bush and thinking that demons just want to, like, tempt you uh, and, and give you cancer. Uh, the, the deeper idea uh, is that um, this idea of spiritual warfare is a campaign of lies versus truth. And so we advance God's kingdom by championing the gospel message. And so what we believe about God's character and glory is where we root our eternal and even practically temporal joy. That's where we root it. It's in who God is. So the gathering and scattering of God's people, this is ultimately gospel worship. It's, it's not just the moment that we were singing earlier, right, where how was worship today? We should ask God how was worship, not how it was from one another. Right? That's what it's really about. And so this produces three things when we, when we advance God's kingdom through truth and worship. First of all, it, it glorifies God. Secondly, it brings a deeper satisfaction and contentment in our lives, a joy. And thirdly, it wins the lost to salvation. I mean, look at the result that the church had in verse 47. This is the last idea, gospel impact. It says that they were, uh, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, we need an amen on this. You and I don't save people. Amen. All right, lest we forget, you and I are not the ones saving souls. So we don't stress out about the Lord adding to his church. That is not our job. If we take that job title, like, oh, I'm into church growth. It's like, well, that's God's job. So I don't ever want to be guilty of, you know, messing with God's job title. It's the Lord's job. He adds to the church, not us. And so what we do is we trust his work to advance as we submit to him. Now, did you guys know that Right now, in uh, America, there are about four, uh, this can't be real. I'm going to have to verify this stat because I've heard it before, and it, it really saddens me. Um, so I'll do due diligence. This may not be an accurate stat today. But at one point, recently, this stat came up that 4,000 churches a year are closing, and only 1,000 are being planted. 
So what that means is we have a net loss, a net close of 3,000 churches every year. And if that's true, then we're only decades away from watching the American church basically uh, fall off the map of Western society. And we know why the, this is happening, but I want to bring it back to the, to the eight concepts. Can we put these on? The, oh, they're already on the screen. Good job. If we don't follow these, if we're unhealthy, this is what can happen. We just watch the screen. We stop proclaiming the gospel. And we start saying, we don't want you to be separate from the world. We just want to catch you where you're at and be comfortable. So we're not going to proclaim Christ. We want it to be comfortable. We want you to feel at ease. And so we're just going to help you live a better life. We're going to give you tools and tips and good advice. And so not gospel, but advice. And so don't separate from the world. Just Jesus wants to help you where you're at today. And so as he's helping you where you're at, Right? You're going to be in awe, not necessarily uh, being devoted to the things of the church, but the things of the world. So your awe will come out of our production and the things that we're able to come up with. And look how many people we had. The awe is not in the gospel. It's in something lesser. So then what happens is we're, we're kind of living in community, but the people that we're around are not really deep. They're not growing. They're not maturing. And so we find ourselves being tempted because we're around all of our peers falling into some of the silly things the world's falling into, and there's no difference anymore. And so that gospel community isn't rooted in the person work of Christ and in truth. It's rooted just in similarities. Like we like to bike together, we like to run together, and that's the community. That's as deep as it gets. What ends up happening is we're generous as long as we give and the Lord's going to give back to us. So I'll give, but there's a promise, right? I'm going to get something back. Rather than, no, it's an overflow. Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. And then what happens is worship is not rooted in the gospel. Worship is simply an event, and we dial it up and make it louder and more exciting and spectacular rather than the simplicity of our lives being worship. And then the, end, the ending thing is that the impact is not truly gospel impact that exceeds our generation. It only happens here and now. It doesn't go on for eternity. So look at what happens if we follow these. Walk through these for a minute. When we truly understand the gospel, when it's been declared to us, and we're well taught, then we truly understand our identity. We get it. And then we're no longer devoted to the world. We're now devoted to the Lord and the way he's designed church. So we begin to see him at work in our midst because we know it's not us. We don't get the credit, the attention. He gets the glory. And so that makes us want to be around each other more. This is cool. God's doing something. I want to be around the work of God and the people of God. And then we see people in need. We immediately react to those needs and we help them. And that draws out that practical love for one another. So we build ourselves up. Our worship deepens. Our worship matures. Our commitment to the Lord and his people strengthens. And then and only then will we have a great impact on this world that exceeds our generation. God will then add to our number and not subtract from our churches. Do you guys see this? See, if we focus on ourselves and our agenda and our comfort and our schedules and our glory, we'll never make and impact. We never will. There's a museum in Greenfield Village, Detroit, Michigan. And there at that museum is a huge steam locomotive. And next to this complicated piece of machinery, there's a, a sign that displays some stats. I'm a guy, I like stats. So there's some stats on this big machine, this, this incredible locomotive. And so it gives you the boiler pressure, it gives you the size of the locomotive, it gives you the number of wheels, the horsepower, how long it is, how much it weighs, a lot of cool stats. But the bottom line indicates that it takes 96% of the power that is generated by the locomotive just to run itself, <laughs> and only 4% of its power to actually pull a load. You know what? I think the church in general is kind of acting like that. 
We have all these programs and all of this money and all of this work, and it's only just perpetuating to keep the work of the church alive rather than the work of the gospel. And so I wonder how we're doing in these eight areas. Now, what I don't want you to do is say, yeah, how are you doing as a church? No, look, we, look around for a minute. We are the church. You and I, we are the church. So how are we doing? Not how's Shoreline doing? You are Shoreline. So how are we doing in these areas? And I'm asking this of myself and all of us. How are we doing with gospel proclamation? You don't need to answer, but just meditate on it. How are we doing with gospel proclamation? How are we doing with being separate from the world, with our devotion to the Lord, having awe of what God's doing? of living in true gospel community, letting people know you, let them in. How are we doing? How are we doing with being generous? Not being coerced by the leader, but but how are we doing with being generous? How are we doing with our, our true lifestyle of worship? And how are we doing making an impact in this community? These are things for us to start the year out considering. We're gonna close and I'm gonna invite the worship team forward. We're gonna close with a song that we've sung before. The song is All Glory Be to Christ. And it's sung to the tune of Auld Lang Syne. You guys, some of you sang that on New Year's night. The rest of you weren't awake because you went to bed at 9 o'clock, right? All right, so you sing it to that tune. So it'll be a familiar tune to kind of kick the year off. But I have a pastor's challenge for us. So go ahead and close your Bibles, get settled. This is a different pastor's challenge as we kick the year off. I don't know if you've ever heard of the tree of Hippocrates. It's a 2,400-year-old tree in the Middle East, 2,400 years old. It was there even alive before Christ came. What's interesting about the tree of Hippocrates, and I don't have a picture, but it's interesting because it's still alive, but it's completely hollowed out. The inside and all life is gone, though it looks alive. And ironically, it even bears leaves and the occasional fruit. But the truth is the hardened bark is dead, and it has been dead for many years. And so tourists come to see this ancient tree, and they line up to get their turn in front of the tree to take a selfie with the tree, to take a picture of the grandiose splendor of what used to be. And I wonder if that's an apt picture of the church today. Now, let me tell you, I'm a fan of the church, and Jesus will always be glorified in the church. But I wonder if that's a picture of maybe Western culture today in the church. But you know what? Thankfully, God is still at work. He's outside of that little town in the Middle East where the tree of Hippocrates grows. Right outside of that town, as you drive in, there are rows and rows and rows of young, vibrant, healthy olive trees. And nobody's lining up to talk about the history of these trees. No one's taking selfies with them. No one even knows they're there. No one's paying admission. But see, those are the same types of trees, and there's vibrant fruit growing up. You're never going to hear about them, but you know that there's kind of some new fruit that's growing. And I wonder today if that's the work that God is doing. It's, it's a vibrant young work that God's doing, but it's, it's ancient in its context. I don't know about you, but I want to be where the vibrant trees are. I don't want to look back at a, a mausoleum or a museum and say, that's what used to be. I want to say... And not to say, let's come up with a new way of doing church. That's silly. But no, let's take the timeless message of the gospel and let's bring it to a new generation. And let's allow the Lord to be glorified, even in the new works that he's, he's starting up. Let's not be afraid of what God wants to do in the future. Many of us in Calvary Chapel, we look back, and rightly so, because we stand on an amazing heritage and a legacy of faithful gospel proclamation 
and exposition of scripture and work of the Holy Spirit. But as we look into the future, my prayer is that we wouldn't keep looking in the rearview mirror. Yes, we were reminded of what God did, but we lean forward and say, this is what God wants to do today. He has a new work to do in the future. I want to see him do something new. It's crazy to me, but as we close, there are three countries right now that have the highest number of unbelievers. Not percentages, but the highest gross number. The number one you probably expect is China. China has the number one most amount of professing unbelievers. Number two is India. By sheer amount of people, China and India take the lead. Do you know what number three is? Number three, the highest number of unbelievers in a, uh, in a population, in a nation, is the United States. You guys realize that we are now third in the world of those who, have, who have, are not professing Christ. Jesus said, upon this rock, the confession that Peter made, that Jesus was the Christ, said, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But guys, gates are not on the offensive. I've never been in battle and saw, I've never been in battle at all, but I've never seen gates on the offensive. Like, let's the gates into battle. No, gates are on the defensive. So what is Jesus saying? He's not saying, you know, hell's gonna come against us and we need to conquer hell. No, he's saying, we're gonna kick the gates of hell down and we're gonna advance and they won't prevail against our offensive initiative. Here's what C.T. Studd said. He said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And that's what I long for. So my pastor's challenge is a little bit different, but here it is for the year and for this morning. My challenge to you is let's storm hell. Let's go for it. Let's go in Jack Bauer style and let's kick the gates down and let's find some people who are in chains and in bondage and set them free. And let's proclaim the gospel, the fullness of Christ. Let's live audacious lives for the glory of God. And let's make church our battleship, not our cruise ship. Let's put the fork down and let's pick up the sword and unite and get aggressive for the kingdom. And let's be the church that Jesus died for. Amen? Amen. Lord, that's our prayer this morning, that we would be the church that you saw, that radiant bride for which you laid down your life for. Lord, let us take up our cross and follow you. We know much work needs to be done. We're only beginning to see, Lord, we're a week away from a four-year anniversary as a church. This is the beginning. This is the foundation. These are the foundational years. So, Lord, this year we committed to you and asked that you do great things that people would look and say, not what a great church, but what a great Savior. What a great God. What a great Scripture. Lord, we thank you that you're, the work, you're doing the work in and through your Holy Spirit through our lives. And we pray, Lord, that this year would be just an incredible year of growth. We commit it to you. We ask even now as we sing together that all glory would belong to you alone. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. In Jesus' name. Would you stand with me as we worship? Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.